Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But she's our guest, the woman George Jones called the singer's singer, Miss Betty Levette. When I wake up in the morning, Mom, and look into the mirror, I see you standing next to me, although I know you're not here. When I see my reflection, I can see you just as clear. Mama, you've been on my mind. My mama, you're always on my mind. Good morning, guys. (laughs) Good morning, Betty. Thank you for that. Well, that's started off being a Dylan song, but it's now a Betty Levette song. Can you tell us how, (laughs) how it became a Betty Levette song? Well, I'm really not the music enthusiast that most musicians are. I do things that I don't know. So in doing still an album, the only thing I knew were the things that had crossed over, knocking on heaven's door, blowing in the wind, a few others. But since our career started at the same time, I, of course, have known all about his career just from uh, listening to what was going on around me musically. So I had never heard this song, and I wanted to know what he's saying, and I had to do that on a lot of the songs. I was surprised, too, to find out how many lovers of Bob Dylan have no idea what he meant. They just like it. But I heard it, and I immediately thought about what a horrible teenager I was in terms of, you know, it wasn't robbing or running the streets. It was just from the time I was a teenager, I've always wanted to be exactly like I am now. And the way I live my life now is not suitable for a (laughs) 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 14-year-old. But it's the way I've always felt. And my mother, I know, used to walk the floor. No, I know one time, I was so excited about being on the road and whatever. And when I moved to New York, especially, I was on the stage at a place called Basin Street East in Boston. And the lights came up and all these police came in. And they said, is your formal name Betty Jo Haskins? I said, yes. They said, well, your mother's looking for you (laughs) in Detroit. (laughs) There had been a death in the family. And she was trying to find me. So the song just made me think. I thought about um, sitting on the porch with her in the summertime. Mostly only black people and people in the South sit on the front porch. And I thought about sitting on the porch with her and her thinking, teaching me songs. And the whole song just took me to my mama. (laughs) <laughs> Just to be clear, if anybody, uh, hopefully everybody will run out and buy uh, Things Have Changed, your album, in, in which you sort of claim, Mama, you've been on my mind. But if they Thank don't you. know, you know, the, the Bob Dylan song seems to be about, you know, a kind of a casual lover that he's had and he's kind well, of I, thinking I about always her. Well, I always tell the audience, I said, now this song is a song here as far as I can understand. Either he met this chick and went to bed with her and could never get over it. Or he met this chick and didn't go to bed with her and could never get over it. <laughs> I said, but I don't know which one for sure it is. But I always say, but this was the way it sounded to me when I heard it. 
It makes yeah. perfect sense to make it that literal <laughs> and immediate. It's beautiful. It really is. And I'm, I'm interested in the background of things that changed the album. To big it up as it should be bigged up, Griel Marcus, the eminent Dylan critic, said it was the best album of the year in 2018. And what is his address? <laughs> <laughs> we can put you in touch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, how, did, how, did, how did it come about in the first place? I will listen. I will be straight. No chaser. I needed a recording very, very badly. I have a good friend who is also the photographer of most of the sexiest pictures you've ever seen of me. Her name is Carol Friedman. And she had the notion of me doing Bob Dylan songs. And I just said, okay, here's his. You get me somebody who will pay for that shit and I'll do it. (laughs) She came back. She had a potential deal with Verve Records. Well, she didn't have, but she had had Verve to say that her notion was for me to work with Steve Jordan, Leon Pendarvis, and Larry Campbell. I don't know how she came up with those people, none of whom I had ever heard of. I didn't know anything other than those Bob Dylan songs that I told you. Steve told me later I had met him, but I didn't remember it. And I didn't know Leon Pendarvis or Larry Campbell, none of the three can I live without anymore as long as I live. (laughs) (laughs) But she talked them into the notion of it. And I had a little bit of, as far as selling records, I mean, you had to admit two people up at that point, I'd only had two records in the 40 or 50 years that had done any kind of selling but they liked uh, the way my voice sounded and the notion of that voice on Bob Dylan tunes appealed to them. And they signed me and I could have slapped her over when she came back and said they <laughs> wanted to have this meeting. I was really outdone. And I went to the meeting, I met Steve Jordan and liked him a lot and he seemed to get on right away. And uh, he likes the fact that I knew all of his idols personally from Detroit. And they signed me. And the one thing was they had to all give Bob Dylan tunes. I said, well, now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now. (laughs) And having this record historian, my husband, in my life, he has everything that anyone ever went to a microphone and did. You should see our house. Oh, God. But no, he keeps it all confined to one place. But um, he has a friend who had a place upstairs over their living room and has the same amount of recordings that Kevin has. And his floor collapsed into his living room. <laughs> so ours is over a cement floor over our garage, so that won't happen. But were it not for that, it could. We have everything that has ever been recorded in the history of the world. And he had everything Dylan had ever recorded. So he listened to <laughs> maybe 200 tunes and narrowed it down to maybe a little over 50. And then I listened to those because he knew what I would like and what I wouldn't say and what I wouldn't like. And I surprised him in some cases. I think we recorded 12 tunes or 10. I can't remember. 12. 12. Yeah. Yeah. 
12. Yep. Well, I had only heard four of them in my life. And were you at all aware of the history of any of them? I mean, if you take those 12 and you add the other three that you've done, everything is broken most of the time and unbelievable. As okay. a Dylan fan, I just happened to notice that four of those are from one album. Those, I had never heard those yeah. until I recorded them. It's just amazing that you were able to sort of get into them in the way that you that you have done. I mean, for instance, there's this Emotionally Yours, which is not a particularly well-known Dylan song. I mean, they're all, every track is fabulous, but the Emotionally Yours is never, I've never particularly liked it. I don't particularly like Dylan's <laughs> I never, I've green? never heard it, and I said, I listened to it, and I, I usually am attracted to the melody. Oftentimes I'm disappointed with songs because the lyrics don't save it for me, and I'm not going to go with just the melody. But when I listen to it, I said, poor thing, he's trying to be in love. He is not accusing anyone of anything. And when I do it on stage, I tell people, after I knew how I wanted to go with the song, I was sitting on the couch one night and going through it with him, with Bob. And my husband came in and I said, Kevin, Bob Dylan is making me cry. And he said, oh, you're just drunk. <laughs> so, I knew how I wanted to do it, and that was making me cry. Yeah, well, you jumped past his, like his version. I think, I, I love Dylan. I love Dylan's voice. He wanted but, to make you cry, too, but, but he, he couldn't. can't open up he, that's that That's right. That's exactly. And that's the only time that I peeped. <laughs> no, that's absolutely right. He just can't quite get the irony out of his voice. No. Whereas no. you have got that emotional openness. I said, let me just take this straight to him. Because that's what it was. He was merely trying to say I love you more than anything I've ever seen before in my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he couldn't say that. It's too simple. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get any pushback when you swapped some lyrics like Bell Star and Annie Oakley for No, uh, I'll Otis tell you Redding what. And, I'm extremely off. disappointed that I did not hear from him because I sincerely believe that I'm the only person who has ever approached these songs from my own emotions as opposed to, well, he's trying to save the world. Well, he hates it, Martin Luther King died. Well, he hates hungry people. And, you know, I approached it from everything happening to me. And I really expected to hear back from him, but I did not. The one thing that I did hear well, it had to have gone through him. We were fortunate enough to meet and talk to his attorney, uh-huh. who said that some of the tunes he really didn't even recognize, but he loved. And he said that I had permission to do anything I wanted to do with him. Isn't that great? So I took that as a, I can trust her with him. Yeah, yeah. But you <laughs> as did- opposed to, I love the way you did them and you can do anything you wanted to. <laughs> but you did bump into him once, did you not? Yes, I did. I was coming off the stage. I think we were in Italy. And he was going on right after me. I was pretty much co-starring the show. But it was a big festival. And when he was going on, I had come in to get changed into my dressing room. And when I got ready to come out, there was security standing there. In fact, on the whole, it was kind of a little promenade with dressing rooms, a whole hall of dressing rooms across from each other, maybe 10 dressing rooms on each side. And they said, you can't come out right now. And I said, why? 
<laughs> they said, because Mr. Dillon is getting ready to go on the stage. I said, I don't give a fuck who's getting ready to go on the stage. You better move out of the way and let me get out of here and go sit down somewhere. I was really tired. So I moved them and walked on out of my dressing room. Meanwhile, they have my band and everybody else who wants to see him go on stage in a little pin like, and they're trying to shoo me over to there. I said, I'm going to the van and sitting down. And he came out of his dressing room across the promenade on the same side. I had to go toward the dressing room, then down the steps toward the cars. He was going toward the stage. He walked across the thing, well, his bass player, whom I did not know, knew my bass player. So he knew who I was on site. And I saw him mouth because people were saying, there he comes, there he comes. And when he came out, I saw the guy walking with him point over to me and say, that's Betty LeVette. And he walked over and took my face in his hand and kissed me on my mouth. And then he went on to go on stage. Now, my thing is, that kiss did not do me any good because I've been kissed by everybody in this business that people dream about. I needed for him to say my damn name. And that would have cost him nothing. Even if he said, if he played it low, well, I think Eddie LeVette did a pretty fair job. <laughs> you know, anything. All he had to do was say my name, as well as the recording did. Without him, with his blessing, mm. I could have not been hustling this year. What was the kiss like? Was it a big old hard one, or was it a kind of a soft, no, mushy he just, one? No, he took my face in his hand and just, hey, listen. It wasn't the thing that I was waiting for. I've kissed Otis Redding and David Ruffin. <laughs> so... I, you know, <laughs> it was no big deal. Not to me if it wasn't what I needed. Yeah, exactly. I don't be standing around throwing my panties over nobody else, nothing. So <laughs> I don't even know how he mistook that. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of big names, uh, you had Keith Richards on on your album. Uh, I guess through Steve. I'm, oh, that was the kiss, you know, was before the album, too. If it had been after the album, I would probably have slapped him. Oh, so it was before the album? Yes. I had done those, oh. you know, the Everything is Broken and oh. whatever else I had done. I had done those. Oh. And I assumed, because and, what you have to do almost is what his son told me when he came to see my show. <laughs> you have to kind of figure out what he thinks or what he's talking about. So I assumed that the kiss was for the pleasant job that I had done on his tunes before. So I hadn't even done the album if it had happened. And that's why I'm saying I assume with his attorney telling me that I could do what I wanted with the tunes. That was kind of another kiss. Well, he, he did what he wanted with you, right? So that's that's only fair. Yeah. I don't know anybody who has ever kissed me or touched me in that manner. Jesus. Who they, whom I didn't get anything from. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, my kisses itself. Kevin had to marry me to walk up and kiss me anytime he wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking just very briefly about Keith Richards. Was there a kiss uh, involved there, or that was just uh, guitar playing? Oh, Keith you and up? I completely decided 
that had we known each other in the 60s, we would really have just been twice as bad as either one of us was. (laughs) (laughs) He's a little bit rougher than me because he had more money to spend. But he walked into the studio with his drink in one hand and a joint in another. And I was standing there with my glass of champagne and a joint in my other hand. And we hugged and we sat down on the couch together. He did his solo from there. (laughs) And we stayed the whole while he was there. We were just instant friends. And uh, he told me at one point, one of the Rolling Stones, I can't remember which one. We were joking about something. He didn't just say that offhandedly. He was saying that. And I said, shit, you're nothing but a millionaire guitar player. We got along really, really wonderful. And then the next day he sent me this two dozen of the most beautiful roses. And because Steve and I worked together, and because Steve is now a semi-rolling stone, yeah. <laughs> you know, I get a chance to say, tell Keith, I said, hey, he says, Keith sends his love. <laughs> and did he give you any feedback on another song that you kind of just took and made your own, which is Salt of the Earth? No. Because that is quite an achievement, what you do to that song. I would would love to know what he thought of that. I'm amazed he didn't mention it. No, well, I think they can. When you make that much money, you just kind of, if I allow myself to be around you, then that means that. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, these songs are just words on a piece of paper at first. If they brought them to me, they would have been rhythm and blues songs. If they had taken them to Kathleen Battle, they would have been opera songs. <laughs> if they had taken them to B.B. King, they would have been blues songs. If they had taken them to Ida Ross, they would have been pop songs. But they were just words on a piece of paper at first. And while I said the melody always appeals to me, you can always take melodies and bend them or whatever and elongate them and make them as sad or as happy as you want them to be with drums. But um, the words, and especially at this point in my life, the words have to make a lot of sense or they have to be really interesting, like Mystic Garden, where you're saying, what the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, since you mentioned Ain't Talking... I mean, this is a complete coincidence and there's no way that this could be deliberate. But the song that you do, I think it's 2003 on A Woman Like Me, the first song serves him right. Mm-hmm. That sounds quite a lot like Dylan's recording of Ain't Talking, which he was still three years away from writing. Oh, I have It's really... I have no idea how his recording of the tune sounds. I listened to the tunes that I chose. I listened to those all the way down, Kevin picked up the melody for me. We got a key, and I have not heard them since that day, and that's been, what, three or four years ago? Yeah, no, it's just one of those coincidences mm. that is, that you, as yeah. we know from your memoir, your life is full of these these little twists of fate. And things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you picked that up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I'm interested in um, the fact that you, you, do, you did, around that time, perform Things Have Changed, because I know I've seen it on YouTube in various versions, the song. Did you um, perform any other Dylan songs from that album for, for a while when you were sort of touring? Did you tour the, the album? Yes, yes. I still open with things have changed. That's going to change when this new recording comes out in June. Mm -hmm. But I just, I love that intro. 
I was telling Steve Jordan the other night, and it makes my music director so angry. I guess it's about eight bars, and then I'm supposed to come on. And sometimes I just kind of hide behind the curtain because I want to hear it. I love that <laughs> intro. <laughs> it's great, and I love the way it starts on the album, too, those voices That's in the background. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 You ready, Betty? Yeah. Oh, it's great. <laughs> Does it feel good to you, Betty? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That actually reminds me, just jumping hugely forward to talking about starting a song. When you, when you sang at Obama's uh, pre-inauguration celebration at the Lincoln Memorial, which I've also mm-hmm. seen, you know, it's on YouTube, and you, you come out to sing A Change Is Gonna Come, and it's a huge stage. I mean, I think it's the biggest stage I've ever seen. It's as wide as the Lincoln Memorial. And I love the way you walk out there. You walk out there like, I'm going to do this thing. And I love the way you start singing before you stop. It's just like, let's get on with it. It's, <laughs> I love watching that. And then I Thank love... Thank you. Yeah. I tell people now, I theater, when I was doing Bubbling Brown Sugar, mm. it makes you look at the stage so much differently than a nightclub does. Yeah. Before I did Brown Sugar, I had never been on a theater stage. And I had never been directed. And having those two things happen to me, doing the theater show and being directed, completely changed my presence on stage. I used to not leave any space in the song. I learned that a long while, don't just leave any empty space. But in theater, it teaches you not to leave any empty spaces on the stage, any dark spaces, they call them. Mm. And to speak up in a different way and to command a different kind of presence than walking up before a microphone in a nightclub. It was very helpful to me, and it was very helpful to me that day. (laughs) Yeah, no, we're both actors, and we know exactly what you mean. Yeah, absolutely. I also liked when you finished as well, you were doing this, uh, this duet with John Bon Jovi, and when you finished, you just basically turned around and pretty much grabbed John Bon Jovi, and so like, we're done. You know, that's it. And I thought, and that's good stagecraft. I thought when I, you know, what John? So he has remained such a good friend. I just met him then, but I was doing a little radio podcast, and he just he was on that for me. And we asked him for a um, a quote. I don't know whether it was for the Dylan album or which, but I think it's on the back of your book. But uh, go on. Oh, he was talking about what kind of force he thought I was and he always tells people even in speaking interviews he says I know I looked into her eyes and I saw it <laughs> yeah there's that that and I love oh. what I love what Margot Price said about you on her podcast as well with with the the clothes you have on your website that just say on the back Betty Lavette will fuck you up <laughs> <laughs> I love that I fucking love that I love that little woman. She has done so much to help me. I just love her. <laughs> her album is fantastic. I heard it yesterday. I, the it's new the, album. Uh, yeah, just came out. Strays. I can't you get can't enough of that. You can't tell me about it, so I'll, I'll probably get a chance to hear it in the oh, new days. So good. Um, we've been working on mine for the last few days, so I haven't had a chance to do anything. But going back to the uh, the memoir, which is uh, called A Woman Like Me, came out in 2012, which, again, I, I just I read it in pretty much 24 hours because I couldn't couldn't put it down. <laughs> I mean, you know, it begins with a pimp holding your foot as he's dangling you from the top of a 20-story apartment building. Um, yeah. and, and it's just full, it's just so, so rich. It's just, there's so much to 
to say about it, but the one thing, a minor thing, but that Luke pointed out to me the, the other day, we were exchanging, uh, you know, emails. And he said, is this a mistake? She keeps calling her Diane Ross. Why does she keep calling her Diane? I said, well, I don't think she likes her very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what happened. I never got a chance to know Diana. And I never had a warm and fuzzy feeling or relationship with her anyway. And I always called her Diane. And I just didn't change anything. Well, I think I you, were, you you say in the book, you you I mean, basically, to get right down to it, you were involved with somebody who couldn't get you into Motown. And Diane was involved with uh, Barry Gordy. And that's... Oh, well, this is... Was. I mean, you know, I lived there. So there was no this happened this time or that happened. I lived there on a day-to-day basis. You were very big here when you weren't big in the States. You were, you still had a following here. Yeah. In the UK. But it, you know, Jim Lewis told me what I had to do was decide whether or not I could sing. And that the notion of that decide would sustain me. So it's not even, it no longer then became a who's big, I'm not, and whatever. I have rest in the solace that I can sing. <laughs> and, you, and you are a lesson, Betty, to every single struggling artist in the history of the world to keep going. Because one day, and Jesus Christ, you had decades of knockbacks and cancelled albums, but, you know, you got the success you deserved in the end, and I'm so glad for you. Because even now, I listen back to that Atlantic album, and I think, I hope someone lost their job over... <laughs> Not putting this album out because it is so good. You know, I was so mad. I was so angry for so many years when Ahmed heard again. And it was kind of like with the Bob Dylan thing. Every interview I did, I said something about it. And when he died, it was at, I think, some award ceremony and he fell down the steps. And the internet had just started and it was just flooded with, where was (laughs) Betty? Shit. Yeah, nowhere, nowhere that you could tie it to. Yeah, <laughs> but that um, it's just fantastic. And your your version of John Prine's souvenirs. I mean, to anyone who likes John Prine, and and many listeners of this podcast do, listen to Betty Lovett's version. Well, I mean, we should. We haven't name checked the album, so the album is Child of the Seventies. Child of the Seventies or Souvenirs or Souvenirs, yeah. as it was finally released. Yeah, as souvenirs. which is probably what it should have been called. What people have to realize when I recorded it. He had just recorded it a few weeks earlier, and nobody knew who he was, really. So it wouldn't have been conducive to call it Souvenirs. I mean, Souvenirs wasn't that popular then. But you look at some of the other... uh, Brad Shapiro was trying to go with what he thought would be hip and timely. I mean, I just, I want, you know, I have no idea. I have no sense of record business in my head, but I just, I just try, I keep thinking, <laughs> I don't why, either. why, why? But, you know, I mean, did someone think that maybe it, it sounded a bit too close to the kind of ballpark of Candy Staten or something like that? Because she was doing great albums at that time. I've no idea. I mean, I know that you both did Do Your Duty, but I, I don't think there's much similarity the, beyond that. I don't understand what your question is. Did anybody well, I, think... I'm just trying to get inside the minds of the people that decided your album shouldn't be released in 1970. Oh, no, it was strictly a Jerry Wexler, Ahmed Erdogan thing. Ahmed Erdogan wanted Aretha Franklin to be where Jerry Wexler wanted me to be. Mm. And Ahmed Erdogan also wanted to start involving more of the British groups, and Jerry Wexler didn't. So when they parted ways, 
I just got lost on the, when they say put all your stuff in a pile. I was in Jerry Wexler's pile. Uh, there's also a quote that I find from Ry Cooter, who I know you, you, he almost produced one of your albums. Anyway, he, mm-hmm. he said that Betty Levette is the greatest female soul singer in a hardcore vein, but perhaps just too ferocious for mass white taste. Did you, I mean, did you not hear that? <laughs> yeah, I forgot about it, though. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, th- that could, you know, be... I think you were too ferocious for, well, possibly well, my husband everybody. Is, my husband is white, and he believes that that is... Oh, of course, we're, we're white. We love, you know, we love your stuff. But maybe you were ahead of your time? Well, you know, the Brits are a little stronger. They're a little sturdier white. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little sturdier. Yeah. The only other person I've ever heard with your first name with that spelling is Betty Swan. I'm not sure who mm-hmm. came first. Did you ever meet Betty Swan? I think that I did way later, but not during her time. You know, several people came up and had whole careers and disappeared mm. within my career. Betty Swan, yeah. Betty Wright, all the a Bettys. few people. And never did anything again, although they were very big at the time. It happened within my career. This is going to be this year, my 61st year. And I, when I say my group, my group, Stevie Wonder is the youngest in my group. And the Dells will probably be the oldest. They're all three to 10 years older than me. Temptations, Four Tops, all of them. The Supremes are all three years older than me. Shirelles are like five years older than me. So, But that's my group, and my group ends wherever Michael Jackson starts, and that's another group. Mm. Speaking of your, your group, there's another thing you can find on YouTube, which is just amazing. It's when you sang at the Kennedy Center uh, in front of contemporaries like Streisand, who is about the same age, I think, and uh, Aretha. Mm-hmm. Also, Beyonce was there. And, uh, well, it's a fantastic thing if anybody wants to look it up. It's You Did Love Rain Over Me by uh, Pete Townsend of The Who. How did that come to to pass? My husband. (laughs) (laughs) My husband will call anyone and ask them to let me sing. Anyone. The White House, anywhere. (laughs) But they were honoring George Jones that year. Uh And I just had our choices in the album Scene of the Crime. And he called them, and George's people were familiar with it, but they told him so many people were coming from Nashville, they just didn't have anyone else. So Michael Stevens, who was the curator of the Kennedy Center Honors, is who Kevin was talking to. And he said, we actually only have one tune that no one has claimed and he said that is a song by the who and kevin was repeating to me what michael was saying and i said the what (laughs) (laughs) so he let me hear this song i said i guess i could sing it it is a song (laughs) but i said i can't sing that like that and kevin said this is the kennedy sonatas and whatever and i said i know i gotta do it so I knew that I had to do something. So when we got there for the sound check and I went in and I told Bob Mathis, the music director, I said, I, I'm pretty sure I can sing the song, but I can't sing it like that. And so he said, well, how can you sing it? So I sung it to him a cappella the way I wanted to sing it. And he said, we're going to take a little break. I got to write another arrangement. And he wrote me that 
beautiful arrangement on the fly. And we came out after the break and I sung it and everybody thought it was good. Actually, I got more applause at rehearsal than I did when the man called my name to bring me on because nobody knew who the hell I was. But, um, you know, they have names. They have like a cutout of a body in each one of the seats and the name of the person who's going to be sitting there. So when I came out for the final rehearsal and I saw who was sitting everywhere, I didn't even know those people were coming, the ones I knew. Barbara Streisand, I just really think she's one of the greatest singers that I've ever heard. And I, I did most of her tunes on my shows whenever I got a job where people were going to sit down and listen. And I've known Aretha since she was 19 and I was 16, and she was strictly a gospel singer. Then she became a local jazz singer by way of her husband, thinking that she could kill Dinah Washington. And then there was baby Beyonce. And there was Pete Townsend, whom I had never seen before, who is my husband's all-time favorite. And my husband was standing there in the wings, and I was looking up at Barbara Streisand. I was looking down at Aretha, and I was looking over at Beyonce. And I call it my Three Stooges slap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you stopped the show. Aretha and I have been there together going around wrestling with Motown forever. Here is somebody that my husband likes as much as he likes me, Pete <laughs> <laughs> Townsend. And here's Barbara Streisand, whom I've always wanted to know. I can sing too. And here's Beyonce, who I'm certain feels like she's just conquered the world. So it was just a joyous day all around for me. <laughs> you can see it all in Pete Townsend's face, you know. Yeah. Yes, and my husband was watching it. <laughs> yeah. So it was wonderful, and I came off the stage and collapsed. I mean, I had so much built up inside of me. I just, my road manager was standing there, and best friend for 40 years, Robert, and Kevin, and I just collapsed into their arms. <laughs> and this was just after, right? You just recorded... I'm going to let that phone ring. Hello? Oh, no, Comcast, you can't call me when I'm talking to the world. <laughs> <laughs> I do uh, hope Kevin we can leave that here. In. He went out for a second, so <laughs> he would otherwise have gotten that. That's OK. We like to keep it real. So just to go back, that, that Kennedy Center gig was just after you'd recorded the scene of the crime with the drive-by truckers in Fame mm -hmm. Studios in Muscle Shoals. Yes. Yeah. Was that... Just after they kicked out Jason Isbell from Drive-By Truckers? Do you no, know? they kicked him out on my session. Oh, my God. <laughs> Did they really? Okay, well, there's oh, a story a we need to hear. I, I came back one day and he was gone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've dear. heard that that was a rough... Uh, well, I've, I've read in your book that that was a rough session, a rough album. It was for them. It wasn't for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You no, long, yeah. Hey, as long as everybody did exactly what I told them to do, it was fine. When exactly. they didn't do what I told them to do, I got mad and cussed. <laughs> <laughs> you cuss? <laughs> One of my favorite songs on it. I mean, we both just love that album. Uh, seen Thank you. I watched the video the other day of uh, Talking Old Soldiers, the uh, mm -hmm. John cover. Uh, not cover. 
interpretation. Thank um, you. And, uh, <laughs> oops. The way you, you turn the third person into a first person. And the video is great because you do a lot of, well, I would say you do acting because you're singing, but I've never seen anyone inhabit a song on a video like you do on that video. You know, most people just, they just lip sync and, you know, their eyes are kind of dead and it doesn't yeah. really matter. How long did it take you to shoot that? Oh, I maybe did it. I don't do too many things over twice because mm. I pretty much know what I want to do with them. Mm. But in that particular video, they let me do it in Detroit at a place called The Locker Room, where when I was at home, that's where we hung. That's where all the old soldiers in Detroit went to die. I was so happy that they let me do the video at the locker room. Everybody has their own seat at the bar. And every year, somebody would come up missing. They dropped one by one at one. And they were always so supportive of me. And when all of this started to happen with this fifth career, I mean, they've just been going crazy in the locker room. But the locker room is a great, great, great part of my life. I could go in there and get a free drink. Then there were people coming in with, didn't you used to be Betty LeVette? Or if I had something new then, I've known you since whenever. I've known you since you were Betty Joe Haskins. <laughs> so I wanted to do it there. It meant an awful lot to me, and it was very, very true. Well, it really worked. I mean, one of the things that uh, that I loved from your book, or indeed your career, is the fact that you're not from, not only are you, do you not come out of the church, you don't come out of the gospel tradition, you can sing anything, but there was a bit in your book where you, I mean, there's just so much, every paragraph is, is, is juicy, but uh, you opened for Solomon Burke at, at one point, and uh, in the book you have a dialogue with him about faith versus not having faith. It takes place while he's in the bathtub, uh, <laughs> naked as a beached whale and nearly as big as you. I have you never are. read this book. You've not? <laughs> <laughs> no. It was hard enough to write it, to say all of that out loud. I would never read this. You lived it. We read it. <laughs> well, we read it. I'll tell you, it's a great book. You should read it. Uh, maybe now you can read it. <laughs> <laughs> but there's this thing where you're discussing faith with Solomon Burke while he's mm -hmm. naked in a bathtub. It's quite a sight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you went off with somebody else one night? Yes. And then he dropped you from the tour or something no. like that? No. Okay, that's what I it says in the book, I'm pretty sure. I, no. Okay. I went off with, I didn't go off with him. They were in my room. I just didn't answer the door and he knew I was in there. And okay. I just kept very quiet and didn't answer the door. And when I got up the next morning, my room was not paid for, and he was gone. Yeah. I had no plane ticket. But in this fifth career, he had the unfortunate circumstance of running into me in, I think we were in Switzerland. And as my mother used to say, I laid his race down. <laughs> so I'm up on the stage singing, your turn to cry. And he comes by and he puts some money in my hand. Because <laughs> he owed you money. He owed me for the gig I had done. He owed me for my room, which I had to call somebody to bring me room to pay for. And I had to get a plane ticket 
back to L.A. So I was living in L.A. then. So I laid his place down. And when he had this little comeback, since I knew so many people who were involved in it, I told all of them, and I told him when I saw him in Switzerland, I said, I'm going to tell every motherfucker I see. You but mean, he's one of my favorite singers. No, I mean, he's, he's King Solomon. Yeah. yeah, King Solomon. Here's another um, thing you can, uh, you can watch or not watch on uh, YouTube. Your album, Worthy, over here, there's a deluxe edition that it comes with a DVD of your Jazz Cafe gig in 2014. Mm-hmm. At one point, somebody's talking in the audience, and you make them shut up and leave. Uh, no, well, they, I really, I hope that it's not being said someone was talking in the audience, because I came from joints in the ghetto, so there's always somebody talking in the audience. Yeah, no, not just talking, they were disruptive. But no, yeah. this guy, his girlfriend had come in with someone else. And earlier, they had had a little to say, and I kind of kept my eye on them. But they sat down, and the girl apparently sat down with the boy she came with. And the one who was upset about it went and tried to push her off the bar stool. And then the boy she was with, of course, jumped up. I'm singing like a rock, and it doesn't even go as fast as I'm talking to you. It's real slow, real Mm -hmm. quiet. So I went on, and they went on, and I went on, and they went on. And when we got to the solo, (laughs) I said, if you motherfuckers don't get out of here, I will come down here and slap the shit out of both of you. And security came and grabbed them, took them out. It cost them so much money at that poor little record company over there to get that out of Brett's solo because we either were going to have to don't have a solo, which was going to sound kind of strange, or they had to get it out, and that was really hard. Well, it's very memorable, and I'm <laughs> glad I wasn't on the other end of that. But um, it, uh, I mean, people, oh, should I talk? Because I got something to say about everything that's going on on the stage, but I don't talk loud, you know, but I don't want anyone to think, well, I mean, she must be mesmerized by me, but you can't come start no fight in the middle of my show. No. <laughs> Any plans to come back to the UK soon? Oh, honey, it's in my plans every day. But you know, you don't just drop in over there. Somebody no. has to send you money. And I've got four guys that I travel with, and it makes it so much easier for me to do if I can have them with me. We do have an agent that we just signed over there during COVID. And he's been working ever since then to try and make something happen for this upcoming year. So I'm hoping that will be. It just costs, it really, I'm sure that if I said at any time, I'm willing to come over, you put me some musicians together, I'm sure it would go much more expediently. But I'd rather be bitten in the ass by a snaggletooth mule than go to rehearsal. Gosh. <laughs> so... <laughs> I quote my mother a lot. She, if she knew it, she'd be thrilled. But I, um, I'm hoping, hoping, hoping he will come up with something. But as I said, it's so darn expensive mm-hmm. to bring and keep five or six people over. So will you be the economy the... is bad everywhere. Yeah. You'll be touring the new album in the States, presumably? I mean, you, you've mentioned yes. the new album. I, it, is there uh, anything about the new album you can tell us at this point? Yes. 
tough. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> is is it? Uh, are you covering any particular? Uh, I am saying absolutely nothing about it. I promise. Other than that, I love it, and I, I am just so excited about it. I really am, and it's really hard to excite an old lady. I have no more faith in it than I have in anything else. I mean, y'all y'all have made me completely faithless. But I think that it is wonderful, and I am so glad. I was so afraid I was going to die broke and obscure, but I'm just going to die broke. But people will know who I am. And the things that I've just had the good fortune of being able to record in the last 15 years or so, I think, been constructed so well and produced by some really good producers and they've been very good songs and designed for me, even if they were songs you've known for 50 years. But this one is quite unusual, and that is all they will allow me to say. Oh, that's but believe fair you me, I want to tell you all about <laughs> it. <laughs> you see, uh, it's hard for me to keep a secret. So. We can talk a bit more about the Dylan album, if that helps. I mean, did you know, because you mentioned Jerry Wexler, I don't know if you know that Do Right To Me Baby, Do Unto Others, was originally produced by Jerry Wexler, because that song hails from, from Muscle Shoals. Not oh, from, really? Yeah, not it from was, fame, but from the... It was produced on Dylan by... Yeah, when Dylan did Jerry, it originally. Yeah, yeah, in 79. Really? Yeah, yeah, Jerry oh Wexler God, produced I, that album. I hope Kevin doesn't know that, because I can whip <laughs> that out for him. Did well, you I, know <laughs> that Do Right To Me Baby, you know who produced that on Dylan? No, Jerry Wexler. Oh, I feel I've started something now. <laughs> no, you haven't started anything, honey. I get a chance to do that once every seven or eight years. We didn't rehearse this, Kevin, I promise. We've never met before. Uh, no, because I, uh, years ago I went to Muscle Shoals and being the music geek that I am, I went to Fame, I went to Jackson Highway, and then I, I asked the guys, where, you know, where else do I need to go? And they said, well, you need to go to the other Muscle Shoals studio, which is the third one, which is the one where Dylan recorded Slow Train Coming. And it's by the lake mm -hmm. and it's, you know, it's completely desolate now and, and empty. But yeah, that is where well, he recorded Well, that. when I recorded my album there, it wasn't empty, but it was desolate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you record in Fame? Or no, I recorded no. in Muscle Shoals oh, right, at okay. Muscle Shoals Sound. Right. When you say it was desolate, what do you mean? It was just very run down? I mean, it was just a joint. I mean, it was just... Join. I had never recorded in anything other than a fabulous studio, actually. Mm -hmm. And it was just a joint. It was kind of where a bunch of guys get together and hang out. Do you still um, contact? Um, are you in contact with Patterson Hood or any of the drive-by? Yes. Oh, that's yes. Yes. I'm in contact with everybody I've ever known. Joe Henry, who I know you've worked with uh, yes. twice, he produced your. I guess that was. Would you consider that the the big one that? finally broke through the I've Got My Own Hell to Raise album in 2005. Was that the one that, you know, where people started? Well, a woman like me, I say, actually started mm -hmm. this fifth career. It was, believe it or not, they forgot to submit it to the Grammys. They oh, didn't um, yeah. forget it. just kind of got lost in the shuffle. But it won everything else it could win. So that kind of started the thing. Well, they're off just... Fabulous. The quality control, <laughs> I guess it's Kevin again, but it's just, you know, everyone seems to be Well, it's, you know, as I said, Kevin will bring me, well, in, the, in a woman like me, he and I hadn't gotten together when I met Kevin 
the record company owner had disappeared and I could not find him. Dennis Walker had gone to jail and I have what I thought was the greatest thing I had ever recorded in my life and no way to get it out. It was such a thing until there were people talking about finding this guy and kidnapping him and making him sign the stuff so I could get it out. There were people talking about putting it out on their label and then just taking the risk of a lawsuit, especially people in England. They were saying it would take him forever to sue us. <laughs> and um, I met Kevin during that time, and I was just dying for him to hear it. And he listened to it. He said, I just think it's great. But we um, finally got it out, and that was the uh, beginning of it was the beginning. his fifth career. Yeah, and how strange that Joe Henry wound up playing a part in that comeback when a different Joe Henry was name-checked in one of your earlier oh, songs. Oh, isn't you know? that something? That's true. I know. That is true. This is what I mean about these strange You guys cases. don't miss anything, do you? We try not to. We, we are. To. No, we're, we're in love with you, Betty. <laughs> <laughs> when oh, you come I'm over in love here, with y'all. I'm in love to... with y'all now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, babies, I hope I'll be coming soon i just am well it's you know it's just like a cat wherever they're treated best they want to go back and when i'm there i well i was just in spain recently with the northern soldiers and they just make me feel like i'm walking on a cloud and that's the same thing whenever i'm in england i'm just treated so royally well we'll always be emotionally yours (laughs) Oh, tacky, tacky, tacky. Oh, that was wonderful. Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in Studio 3 at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Marcus Moll and produced by Robin Guys. Digital imaging is by Finn Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. Find us on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. Because my dreams are made of iron and steel, with a big bouquet of roses hanging down from the heavens to the ground. The crashing waves roll over me as I stand upon the sand and wait for you to come and grab hold of my hand.